too. You can register online. I believe that is also going in the chat, I hope, as well. So you do have to be registered through Weld County for that event. All right, and that's all the plugs I have. So I wanna to introduce today's training and our speaker. So today's training is gonna provide an overview of the basics of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder um, and discuss some common symptoms and the challenges that caregivers face and families face related to FASD um, in the foster care system specifically. And we're also gonna explore effective strategies to best support children with FASD. And the person who's presenting today is Shauna Fine. Shauna Fine is from Proof Alliance, which is based out of Minnesota, I believe. Um, she's been there for five years as the senior training coordinator. And she also serves on the board of directors for the Minnesota Fathers and Families Network. Um, and she received her bachelor's from Minnesota State University um, with a focus on neurodevelopmental disabilities, chemical dependencies, and mental health, and has more than 10 years of experience working with individuals um, with various types of disabilities. Um, so like we said, you can submit questions directly through the Q&A and we're gonna get those questions asked for you. Um, and depending on you know, how much time we have at the end of class, we can also do more time for Q&As at the end. So yeah, that's all I have to say. So enjoy the class, everyone. And welcome to Shauna. Yes, thank you, Dee. Um, good morning, everyone. And thanks for getting up early on a Saturday morning to learn what foster care providers need to know about FASD. Um, I just got a notification that my internet or Wi-Fi is a little unstable. So uh, please let me know if um, I'm cutting in and out and I'll turn off my webcam because sometimes that can help um, with Wi-Fi issues. All right, so let's just make sure I'm all set up here. Awesome. All right, so I always like to start off with my trainings with kind of uh, gauging the room, seeing where everybody's at, whether they've received FASD training before. Um, so I want you to enter into the chat box, um, whether any anyone on the webinar is currently um, raising a child with an FASD, whether it's suspected or diagnosed. Um, and I wanted to make this presentation as beneficial to you as possible. So if you are raising a child or suspect that you are raising a child with an FASD and have any specific uh, questions about this um, disorder or would like more strategies in a specific area, um, feel free to enter those into the chat um, or in the Q&A and Dee will relate those to me. All right. So as Dee said, um, I'm Shauna Fine. I'm the Senior Training Coordinator for Proof Alliance um, and I have over 10 years of experience working with um, multiple different populations of people with disabilities. Um, I used to do case management working with this population specifically. So through my case management experience and working for Proof Alliance for six years now, um, I've worked with over 300 individuals with an FASD. All right, awesome. So it looks like quite a few of you um, are raising um, individuals with an FASD, that's awesome. Um, Looks like Amy had a question, does FASD just cover alcohol or does it include drug exposure as well? Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that. I have a few slides that um, go over the differences between FASD and NAS, which is neonatal abstinence syndrome. Um, and that is when there is other exposure outside of alcohol. All right, so let's get to it. Um, Brief background about the organization I work for, Proof Alliance. Um, we're a small nonprofit in, based in Minnesota, 
uh, but we do have national initiatives. We are actually the nation's leading resource on FASD. Um, we do a lot of training. We do a lot of family support. We give out about a half million dollars every year in community and prevention grants. And really our mission is broken down in, into kind of a twofold um, uh, initiative. First part is prevention. We do this through empowering women. There's so much mis misinformation out there about drinking during pregnancy. So we like to empower women with the facts and information. But we also know when it comes to drinking during pregnancy, that can be a very complex public health issue. There's so many, many reasons why someone may drink. So we also have that support piece, which I talked about a little bit already. Uh, just a quick disclosure, we acknowledge that not every person who um, can become pregnant identifies as a woman, and we do try to use gender neutral language as often as possible. But when citing research, we will use the language used in that study. So you may hear woman um, when I'm referring to someone who has ability to become pregnant. Here's our roadmap or navigation system, if you will, um, for our presentation today. Um, we'll be doing a deep dive in the FASD basics realm. So really getting down to the nitty gritty. If you've received FASD training, um, you know that the first diagnosis wasn't made until 1973. And in the world of medical research, um, 50 years isn't that long. So we're still learning leaps and bounds about this issue every single year. So for those of you who have received FASD training before, um, this might be a good refresher for you and to get some updated stats. Um, we'll explore some of those common myths and discuss risk factors. And then we'll also take another deep dive in learning how that preed alcohol exposure can impact brain and development and what that might look like in your home. And then lastly, um, we will go into those strategies on how to support a child with an FASD. Um, so why care? Um, I'm assuming not everyone on this webinar is raising a child with an FASD. So why is it, why is it important for you to know about this disorder? Well, most importantly, it's about the kids. And providing caregivers who are gonna be supporting these kids with the tools, the strategies, the knowledge is not only gonna help the kids in the long run, but it's also gonna make you a better caregiver yourself. A lot of the strategies that I'll be sharing today um, not only work for this population, um, they can be good practices for all children. Another reason why it's so crucial that foster care providers um, do receive this training, and actually in Minnesota, it's required um, all foster care providers receive annual training on FASD. And the primary reason for that is it's estimated that children in the foster or adoptive care systems are 10 to 15 times more likely to be exposed to alcohol prenatally, making this population especially at risk of having an FASD. Um, so as Dee said, um, this is gonna be an interactive training and we'll start off with a few true or false questions on prevalence. So I want you to put T for true or F for false. Um, if you think FASD is more common than Down syndrome, true or false? I'll give you a few seconds to get your answers in. All right. So I see the majority of people are saying true. And you are correct. 
current prevalence rates right now for Down syndrome are estimated to be around one in 700. So they estimate around one in 700 individuals in the U.S. Um, have Down syndrome. What about autism though? Do we think FASD is more common than autism? True or false? All right. So I see a little bit more of a mix for this true and false question. Um, but the fact is, this is true. Um, FASD is more common than autism. Current prevalence rates right now um, on a national scale, national scale for autism are estimated to be around one in 59 individuals. So we know FASD is more common than one in 59. A lot of times people are, are surprised to find out this stat uh, because autism is much more widely well known, um, but you'll soon find out how society a lot of times underlooks the dangers and the risks of drinking during pregnancy. Looks like uh, Kate had a question about, um, do they commonly, is there a common um, a stat where there, there's a co-occurring diagnosis between autism and FASD? There are very distinct differences between FASD and autism. Um, one being, we know what causes FASD. We don't quite know yet what causes autism. It is very common, um, in my professional experience to see that someone does have a co-occurring autism and FASD diagnosis. And there are a lot of, re there is a lot of research out there um, to support those individuals. Um, I'm definitely a nerd, I love my research. So if anyone is interested in um, finding out what research I have available, feel free to let me know. All right, so our last <clears throat> true or false question. Um, FASD is a leading cause of intellectual disabilities in the U.S. True or false? All right. So it looks like everyone is definitely getting on my bandwagon. <laughs> it definitely kind of uh, picking up what I'm dropping down right now. This is true. Not only is FASD the leading cause of intellectual disabilities in the U.S., but the world. And I feel like this stat alone makes it really shocking that there isn't more awareness surrounding this disorder. So how common is it? The CDC or the Center for the Centers for Disease Control did a prevalence study back in 2019. And a lot of people are astounded by what they found. They estimate as many as one in 20 US school children has an FASD, one in 20. To give you a good perspective of just how common one in 20 is, that's saying that 5% of the US's population is impacted, has organic brain injury caused by drinking during pregnancy. If we would combine autism, Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, if we would combine all three of those disorders, FASD is still more common. So if you aren't one of those families or caregivers who said that you are working with a child with an FASD, you might be. Whether you have known it or not, you have come in contact with someone with an FASD um, throughout your life. So getting down to the nitty gritty, what is FASD? In the simplest terms, it's a group of birth defects caused when 
someone drank during pregnancy. And that sounds like a very simple explanation, but you'll soon find out that this is a very complex disorder. Um, one of those complex factors is that there is a very wide range of potential symptoms prenatal alcohol exposure can cause. And no two people on the spectrum are the same. On top of that, there isn't one symptom everybody in the spectrum has. So this is a very person-centered or individualized disorder, as I like to say. And I always like to point out that IQ may not be a good indicator to determine whether someone has an FASD or not, because when it comes to that organic brain injury, that causes a lot of inconsistency in brain functioning. So their skills, their challenges and strengths um, might not all be on par or align with their physical age. To give you an example, let's say, let's use the Big Bang Theory, um, for example. If you're familiar with that show, you know all the characters. I always like to use Sheldon Cooper um, as a good um, example, because you know Sheldon is very, very intelligent, but he's kind of socially awkward. Um, so we'll talk a little bit more about those behaviors and um, those inconsistency in their skill levels a little bit later on. FASD is permanent. It lasts a lifetime. There is no growing out of it. So it's so crucial that we're identifying these kids as soon as possible because all of the research shows the earlier that they're identified, the earlier those supports are implemented, the better the outcomes for everybody in the family system. And lastly, and most importantly, I wholeheartedly believe all people on the spectrum can succeed. They can be, they can reach their full potential. It starts with identifying, implementing those supports and continuing them as needed. Success is gonna look differently on each person on the spectrum. So when you hear me say FASD in itself, it's not a diagnosis. That is more of an umbrella term for the four medical diagnoses within the umbrella. And you heard me say, this is a medical-based disorder. Their brains are physically altered from that prenatal alcohol exposure. Um, and I won't go too much into detail about the specific diagnoses and the different diagnostic criteria between the diagnoses, um, unless anyone has um, a specific question. But I will briefly talk about each. Um, FAS, or fetal alcohol syndrome, definitely the most widely well-known on the spectrum yet it's one of the least commonly diagnosed that we see at our clinic. Someone with FAS, they're gonna have the three hallmark facial features associated with prenatal alcohol exposure. Um, they're gonna be, they're gonna have growth deficits, so more petite compared to their peers. And then they have three or more brain domain areas, which they'll have major deficits in. It's also important to point out that this is not a spectrum of severity. So someone diagnosed with FAS, they're not gonna be better off or worse off compared to someone with partial FAS or ARND or ARBD. It's just how that individual is impacted. Um, partial FAS is very similar to FAS. There are pretty much two primary differences between them. Um, one, FAS is the only diagnosis where confirmation that there was drinking during pregnancy is not needed. 
And that is because they have all the physical features associated with that disorder. Um, partial FES, that confirmation is required, as well as they don't have all of the physical features, but they have some. So they might not have the growth deficits, but the facial features, or maybe one or only two of the three hallmark facial features associated with FAS. Alcohol-related birth defects, this is going to be purely the physical manifestation from that um, alcohol exposure. This is where we might see hearing or vision impairments, um, bone deformities or joint deformities, um, heart defects, kidney, liver, and other organ anomalies are also common. Um, the brain damage is not included in the alcohol-related birth defects disorder. I'm always curious to find out how many people are aware of alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder or ARND. So if you wanna put in the chat, um, yes or no, whether you have heard of or are familiar with ARND. And as people get those answers in, um, I'll explain why I like to ask that question. Um, one being, ARND is the most common diagnosis that we see in our clinic. Um, two, in my experience, the clients I've worked with who had ARND, I would see them have the most challenges especially if they did have a high um, IQ, high or average IQ, I should say. Because when it comes to ARND, these individuals, they have an organic brain injury, but none of the physical impairments. So they look normal, whatever normal looks like. So this is where we'll see individuals um, have behavioral issues or mental health issues or inconsistency in their thinking patterns. Things are just not quite adding up. And the people around them, they don't understand why they're having these issues. Because of that, there's a lot of stigma and negativity, unfortunately, that gets attached to this population um, because of those behaviors. But we need to look at it through a different lens. We need to understand that this is a disability, a physical disability. If anyone on this webinar knows someone who um, is living with dementia or Alzheimer's, you know that they have a neurodiverse disorder. And we would never get mad at someone um, who has dementia because they couldn't remember what they did yesterday, because we understand that. But all too often for these kids, that's what we're at being asked of them. Um, and then NDPAE, this is a mental health diagnosis, so mental health professionals can code and bill um, for their services. But like I said, FASD is a medical-based disorder. And then fetal alcohol effects is just an outdated term that we no longer use before the Institute of Medicine um, created the full spectrum. All right, so... A really common myth I hear in my role as training coordinator is, well, you know, I've always heard that red wine was considered safe to drink during pregnancy, or my sister or my friend told me that it was okay to drink in the third trimester. Well, here's the process that, um, how a fetus is impacted by that prenatal alcohol exposure. And we'll talk about the differences between an adult being exposed to alcohol versus a developing fetus. When a pregnant person drinks, that alcohol goes into their bloodstream. In adults, 
they have multiple ways to oxidize and get rid of that alcohol. It can go through their breath, through their skin, through their urine. They have enzymes in their bodies to break down and oxidize that alcohol, as well as, as, well as fully formed livers. But what happens is that alcohol transfers from the maternal blood supply through the placenta to the fetal blood supply. The placenta, that is that cord how, and basically it's how the fetus gets oxygen and all of its nutrients. And the thing is, fetuses have a lot less methods to get rid of that alcohol. They obviously don't have a fully formed liver. Fetuses liver is only um, acting about five to 10% of that of an adult's liver, as well as they have only one enzyme in their body. Furthermore, fetuses starting at 11 weeks then have the ability to swallow and they swallow to strengthen their lungs and further develop themselves. So because their bodies don't have the ability to fully oxidize and get rid of that alcohol the first time, they urinate it out, it goes into that amniotic fluid that the baby is surrounded by and they swallow it again. That fetus is perpetually reabsorbing that alcohol time and time again. There was one study done on a very small scale. It was only about 30 women where they found that the alcohol stayed in that amniotic fluid into the fetus where they urinated out that recycling system for up to 36 hours. If a pregnant person drinks within two hours, that fetus's blood alcohol level is at the same level as that adult female um, or even higher. So when it comes down to it, there is no known safe of alcohol to consume during pregnancy. However, not everyone who was exposed to alcohol prenatally is gonna have an FASD or any birth effects. And this is where it gets complicated. And this is why the Institute of Medicine, the CDC, the World Health Organization, they all have the same message that there isn't any safe amount of alcohol to consume during pregnancy. Despite some people being able to drink and not have it affect their developing baby. Because think of it as an equation. There are so many factors that are going to determine whether there is harm and to what extent. And some of these factors make the fetus more vulnerable, so more likely to um, have negative impacts. And there are other factors that are more protective that can reduce those impacts. There is no factors that can prevent FASD, um, but they can make those um, impacts less severe. And we'll go through a few of those factors. Um, obviously dosage is gonna be considered. Um, binge drinking is seen to be the most risky and does show the most severe impacts. <clears throat> and according to the CDC, a binge drinking episode is considered uh, four drinks within a two hour span for the average woman. And I'm not sure about Colorado, but if you're anything like Minnesota, alcohol and binge drinking especially is very, very common here. Um, but I do wanna point out mild or moderate drinking can still cause an FASD. One glass of wine can cause an FASD. Unfortunately, that is just a fact. <clears throat> Resilience of the fetus. Some babies just tend to be hardier than others. There's been multiple studies done on twins where one twin is more severely impacted than the other. Even though they were exposed at the same time, 
with the same amount of alcohol prenatally. You have to consider the mother's health. Is she eating a nutritional diet? Is she exercising? Um, is she taking prenatal vitamins? As well as her genetics and the father's genetics. I do want to point out that FASD is not generational though. So it cannot be passed down from mother to child without any exposure during that nine month period. So how genetics plays a role, it's more of a probability game almost. So let's say there is a woman with a long family history with substance use disorder and FASD. Those future generations might be more likely to get an FASD with less exposure compared to another woman who doesn't have that family history. If a woman is also using other substances on top of alcohol, now, as I said, the only way that FASD can occur is if there's alcohol exposure prenatally. But if someone is using multiple substances, it can make those impacts more severe. And then timing of exposure. And when I say timing of exposure, I'm not saying that there's a safer point during that nine month period to consume alcohol versus another. It is whatever body parts are being developed at that time of exposure, only those body parts can be impacted. But based on our fetal developmental timeline here, what is the one body part that's being developed throughout the entire nine months? If you wanna enter those um, answers into the chat box, I'll give you a minute. Yes, I see someone already answered. Brain, our central nervous systems. In our central nervous system, that is that spinal cord in your brain. Now, the thing about the, our brains is they are the most sensitive organs in our bodies. They have, a, they have a lower threshold to alcohol and teratogens than other body parts. So in theory, that developing fetus's brain is gonna be impacted first and most severely. This is one of the reasons why FASD is known as the invisible disability. All right, so I had a question um, similar to this at the beginning of the presentation, and this is where we'll talk a little bit more about how um, other substances can impact um, developing fetuses. But first we'll get to the polling question. So according to the Institute of Medicine, which of the following substances do you think would cause the most harm to a developing fetus? And again, you can just put A, B, C, D, E, or, or D or E. We'll go through a few of those answers. And Shauna, before we go through that, we have one question from the last slide. Um, a oh. foster parent is asking, what did PAE stand for on the last slide? Oh yes, I apologize. I apologize. Um, PAE is just an acronym for prenatal alcohol exposure. Uh, thank you for your question. All right, so it looks like I got a mixture here of different answers. Um, a few of you said A, opioids. Now I know right now on a national scale, we are in an epidemic when it comes to opioid use and overdoses. I heard on the radio, so I don't know if this is a true fact or not, because um, I don't have a source for it, but I heard on the radio about mm, six months ago, probably, that deaths caused by overdosing on heroin and opioids has officially passed deaths caused by 
um, car accidents in the nation. So it's a serious epidemic, but when it comes to prenatal exposure, it is not A. Um, I know a few of you said B, crack cocaine. And I'm never surprised when people answer B for this because back in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a big crack cocaine boom. Um, and it was all over the media and the media was all up in their arms saying that how our human services industry was just gonna collapse from all of these babies being exposed to crack cocaine and there was no way to support these um, people growing up. But what they have actually found is individuals who are exposed to crack cocaine um, prenatally are actually developing more on par with their peers compared to someone who was exposed to alcohol prenatally. So it's definitely not B. Um, C, methamphetamines. I don't know if this is just my personal experience. Um, I studied um, chemical dependency in college, so I know the impacts of meth, and they are very, very negative, um, but it is not C. Um, I don't believe I saw anyone say marijuana, but it's not. Um, marijuana is actually the least impactful substance someone can use during pregnancy. On that note though, Proof Alliance, we would not condone anyone to use any one of these substances, um, whether you're pregnant or not. Um, so the answer is E. I am here for a reason, right? This stat, this exact stat was reported to our federal Congress in 1996. So this is not new information that we're just finding out now. This has been around for a very long time. It wasn't until 2005 when the Surgeon General started requiring liquor companies to put warning labels on all of the cans and bottles saying that alcohol exposure can cause birth effects. Now, I feel like there are several reasons of why the dangers of drinking during pregnancy are underlooked and why more people don't know about it. Um, one of those is alcohol is accepted in our society in the US. It's socially acceptable. It's everywhere. It's part of all of our um, community events. You think of weddings or high school graduations. And the concept of a high school graduation having alcohol um, always kind of stumps me because you think who the party's actually for, not even legally old enough to drink yet. I wonder if, okay, so I didn't include the other um, chart. I have a chart that talks about um, all the different substances and how they can impact a developing fetus and the long-term impacts. So if anyone is, is interested, I can definitely um, add that slide um, or send that to Dee or Lindsay to share with you. Now, the difference between FASD and neonatal abstinence syndrome, and uh, so a baby can have neonatal abstinence syndrome if there is exposure to any one of these substances other outside of alcohol. And what they have found with NAS is um, after the baby is born, they go through severe withdrawal symptoms. So that might be where you see a commercial or a picture of a baby shaking. They're very tiny, they're um, underweight. But within one month, um, those withdrawal symptoms and other impacts tend to go down drastically. And the long-term impacts are not nearly as severe as prenatal alcohol exposure. So I hope um, that answers the question of whoever asked that. 
All right. So a big portion of my role is addressing the stigma often attached to people who use alcohol or other, other substances during pregnancy, um, especially for foster care providers. Um, I know the behaviors of FASD can be very challenging, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But Proof Alliance, we do not support any kind of crim criminalization who use, for people who use alcohol or drugs during pregnancy. Because if something is criminalized, it's stigmatized. And if you look throughout history, when something is stigmatized, the outcomes tend not to be that positive. And there really isn't, there really isn't any positive change in the long run. So what are some reasons why someone may drink during pregnancy? And you can ask those, or you can answer those in the chat box. Yes, someone said stress. Um, they use it as a coping mechanism. And whether you're pregnant or not, um, using substances is never a healthy, safe choice um, because alcohol is a depressant. And our brains rely, rely on a very delicate balance of chemicals and processes in our brains. And alcohol, when you throw that into the mix, it can make um, mental health issues even more unstable. Um, someone said addiction. Exactly. Um, individuals struggling with substance abuse disorder, um, that's a very challenging condition to overcome. If anyone on this webinar knows someone who struggles with addiction, you know it's not as simple as snapping your fingers and saying, oh, I don't want to use today. I wish that was the case. Unfortunately, it's not. And we want women who are especially struggling with addiction to feel as safe and supported to go seek out treatment, to go seek out help versus um, not even going to doctor's appointments. And that is what we have seen um, over the history when something is criminalized. Um, someone said they don't know they're pregnant. Yes. Personally, unplanned pregnancy I believe is one of the main reasons FASD is so common in our country. <clears throat> Around 45 to 50% of all pregnancies in the US are unplanned. And like I already said, alcohol use is very common. So if someone is drinking and they don't know that they're pregnant and they cause their child to have an FASD, should they really feel that shame and that stigma? I believe not. Um, someone said tradition. Yeah, it could be your peer pressure or they've heard um, that it was okay to drink during pregnancy from someone that they trust. My grandma to this day still says that, oh, if one of my nieces are teething and they're really fussy, just, just rub some whiskey or brandy on the gums. That will clear it right up. Um, and I still have to tell my grandma, no, that's not okay. <laughs> that's not healthy. But it's something that it was a, it was a tradition for her. Um, someone else said they don't know the risks. Yes, as I've said multiple times already, um, there's a lot of misinformation out there. I would encourage you following this webinar to go on Google and type in, is it safe to drink during pregnancy? You will get over a million answers. And that's the thing about the internet nowadays is someone can go and ask any question and then they can search and search and search until they find the answer that they want. 
So if you are interested in any kind of health-related um, information, making sure that you're getting that information from a credible source. Sources with um, email addresses that end in .org or .edu or a state or a nationwide organization. All right, so coping mechanism, yes, unplanned pregnancy, um, social event. Yes, alcohol is very socially acceptable, as I said, um, especially here in the Midwest though. If we would look at a map of the US, all the Midwest states are in the top 20 when it comes to the highest binge drinking rates. Um, I know Minnesota is number one, um, North Dakota is number, or I'm sorry, Minnesota is number six, North Dakota is number one, Wisconsin's number two, I believe Iowa is number eight. I'm not exactly sure where Colorado falls into there, um, but if you're in the Midwest, you are probably within the top 20. All right. Oh, I love that someone said, um, some doctors say a glass of wine a week is okay. I am not very often do people point that out, um, but I'm so glad that someone did bring that up. Um, in Minnesota, it's estimated that one in five women, their doctors are not giving them any message about drinking during pregnancy. And some doctors still say it's okay. I could tell you multiple stories of women um, where their doctors didn't give a message or told them it was okay. And one, one particular story was this woman who was two years sober. And this was her um, second pregnancy. And she was so proud of herself that she made it you know, all the way through her pregnancy without any alcohol exposure. But when she went in for her six month checkup with her OB, she found out that she had low iron. And the doctor said, um, don't worry about it, go home, drink a glass of wine. It will help with your iron count. It will help with your stress. And she actually had to educate the doctor telling them, you can't tell women that, especially someone like me who has a history of addiction, because that one glass of wine will turn into two, into the whole bottle, into the whiskey. Um, someone else said, the father's intoxicated. Now, FASD cannot be caused by um, male usage of substances, but over the last 10 years or so, the role a father plays in whether they can cause birth effects or not has been a really big question. And if you would have asked me this question a year ago, I would have said, nope, there's no way for a father to cause his children to have any birth effects. Um, but we're finding out now that that might not necessarily be the case. Um, they have found some correlation between a father's alcohol use and children's ADHD, um, but that's not a, that's not a solid fact quite yet. They just have found some correlation to it. But when a male does ingest alcohol and other substances, it causes a variety of reproductive issues, primarily with the count and mobility and functionality of the sperm. So the sperm will have two heads or a wonky tail. Um, and we have no idea what impacts um, alcohol exposure has on the genetics of a father and its sperm. And that's where a lot of those birth effects could be from. Another thing that they have found from males um, alcohol usage is that 
it can it impacts their sperm and their fertility for much longer than what they had initially anticipated. So if there was a male who um, was a heavy drinker in his early 20s, around college time, right? They're saying that his sperm is still being impacted in his late 30s. All right, so here are some of those reasons that we just uh, talked about, and I believe that we talked about all of them, which is awesome. All right. Oh, thanks, Kate. Someone said, according to the CDC, Colorado is the 18th um, highest binge drinking state. Thank you. So another true and false question. Most people with FASD have distinct facial impairments caused by drinking during pregnancy. True or false? All right, awesome. So it looks like um, everyone was definitely paying attention at the beginning of the presentation. Um, this is false. Um, before I go into why that is and um, the importance that we don't focus on the facial features as much, um, I'll go into that. But first, I want to talk about what those three hallmark facial features are. And I hope that you guys can see my mouse. Uh, the first is a thin upper lip. The second is a smooth philtrum, and that is that groove between the nose and the upper lip. That cubicle will be flatter than it should be. And then the third is they'll have shorter palpebral fissures, which is just the medical terminology for the distance between the inner eye and our outer eye fold. They might also have issues with their epicanthal folds, and that is that skin between the nose and the, um, the, nose and the eye here. Basically, it boils down to that they have smaller set eyes. And the reason why we don't use these facial features as a key indicator anymore is one, only 10 to 15% of the whole spectrum has these facial features. So it's a very, very small percentage of the one in 20 individuals impacted. As well as the difference between a standard facial measurement versus having a facial impairment caused by prenatal alcohol exposure is as large as two millimeters. So you either need to be a, cl a clinician who specializes in FASD, has all of the tools, excuse me, the very distinct measuring tools um, to determine this based on age and race and other factors, or you need to have eagle eye vision. So I really recommend you not going up to your um, kiddo right now and start looking to see if they have these facial features. Um, we'll go over some other physical features associated with FAS during the next slide. Um, but I want to point out that when someone does have these facial impairments, it doesn't tell us how severe the brain injury is going to be or which brain domains areas that they're going to have challenges in. So these facial features, yes, they are a part of the diagnostic process, at least in Minnesota. We use the Minnesota criteria. Um, but they're not a key indicator. So here are some other common physical symptoms um, associated with alcohol exposure. Um, as I said, hearing and vision impairments is very common. Um, skeletal abnormalities, um, heart defects. Um, they might have issues with their joints um, or their hips rotating them properly. Um, alcohol is specifically more a midline teratogen, 
So it's going to impact the midline structure of the body. Um, so if you look at yourself in the mirror, the very middle of the body, that's most like, likely to be impacted. When a kiddo comes into our clinic, our nurse practitioner assesses the facial features, the growth deficits, um, whether they have microcephaly. And microcephaly is just when someone has a smaller head. If you remember the Zika virus, which can be a little difficult to remember with the whole COVID pandemic going on right now. But if you ever saw pictures of a baby and the mom had um, the Zika virus, you saw that the baby's head was really small. That's called um, microcephaly. The most serious characteristics of FASD by far is the organic brain injury. Some individuals can have structural brain injury or structural damage, but it's more likely that the wiring or the connections in their brain are a little, um, just here. I feel like this slide explains that a little bit more in detail. So thanks to Dr. Wozniak at the Minnesota, of the University, the University of Minnesota, he got a grant from the CDC to do um, some brain imaging scans study. He was nice enough to send over some of his recent <coughs> uh, scans. So this person, these two left pictures, that's a person with an FASD with structural brain <coughs> damage. You can see very distinctly the difference between the control person who is neurotypical, does not have um, FASD versus the person with an FASD. Their brain is a lot smaller. The white and gray matter within their brain is thicker or thinner when it should be the opposite, as well as the organs in the brain are deformed and smaller than they should be. And as I was saying, this is a severe case. Most individuals on the spectrum do not have this severe of structural damage, which is why we typically don't use brain imaging scans as a way to diagnose or identify this population. And I do wanna talk about a few parts of the brain um, that are commonly impacted by prenatal alcohol exposure. But I first wanna address that I know the behaviors of FASD can be very challenging. And they can try the patience of the most dedicated, patient, understanding caregivers and professionals. And I always recommend that whenever those behaviors are starting to get on our nerves and starting to frustrate us, to think of pictures such as this. Just because we can't physically see their disability and the symptoms of their disability come out as behaviors, doesn't mean that they're not actually experiencing symptoms from their disability. So thinking of pictures such as this really kind of gives me a sense of understanding and patience. And it kind of gives me a different perspective. If, for example, we see someone out in public that has a sign language interpreter, automatically based on our experience, based on our society, what we've learned from other people, our behavior automatically adjusts when we talk to that person and interact with them. For this population, because a lot of times it is an invisible disability, people don't make that automatic adjustment. And thinking of pictures like this um, really helps people give that different perspective. <clears throat> so the two common areas of the brain that I would like to um, explain a little bit more about and how prenatal alcohol exposure can have negative impacts on those are the frontal lobe and the corpus callosum. 
the corpus callosum is that that C-shaped or ear-shaped organ in the midbrain right there. And I like to call that the super highway of communication within the brain. So its job is to process information. So you hear a question, you find the place in your brain where the answer is kept and I'll put a response. Now, when someone with an FSD, when they have an impacted corpus callosum, it's not that they're dumb, it's not that they're incapable, it is just their brain takes a little bit longer to get to the finish line. And I always like to use that as an example. Um, think of their brain having permanent um, road construction going on. So they're always having to take a little bit longer route. And the strategy that I always like to recommend to caregivers, um, whether they are working with a child with an FSD or not, is when you're asking them to understand something or you're asking them a question, um, say what you need to say, ask what you need to ask, stop and count 10 seconds in your head before you say anything else. Because whether a child has FASD or not, their brains aren't fully formed yet. They're still building things in their brain. They're still making those connections. And as adults, we get so caught up on what we need to do. We have all these tasks that we need to complete. We need to go to the grocery store because we have to make potluck um, or pot roast tomorrow night. We still need to run to the bank. We need to finish that project for work. Our brains, our processing systems are fully formed. We can, we can think about multiple, multiple things at once, but for kids and especially this population, we need to slow things down. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about strategies for that later on during the strategy section. Um, another part of the brain, as I said, the frontal lobe. And our frontal lobes are in charge of so many things that we do on a daily basis. It's something that we pretty much use every day, all day. It's, a, it's in charge of our impulse control, decision-making skills, problem-solving skills, part of our regulation, and most importantly, our executive functioning. Our executive functioning helps us complete tasks, but not just complete tasks, but what materials do we need to complete that task? In what order do we need to take these steps to complete this task efficiently? That is why a lot of times individuals with an FASD, especially with high IQs have challenges for people who don't understand their brain injury because they have a really high IQ, but then we see poor follow through. Or if someone has an impacted corpus callosum, a teacher will ask them a question and they'll get a blank stare, or they'll just spell the first thing that pops into their head that has nothing um, to do with what the question was or what the teacher was asking them. Another aspect about FASD that um, I found most people um, don't know is that because their brains are underdeformed or wired a little bit differently, it requires them to use more working area of their brain to complete tasks. So for example, let's say that um, we're gonna do a math equation. For someone who is neurotypical, does not have an FASD, that, could, that math equation could be the equivalent of their brain going for a mile walk on a hot summer day. Um, yes, they might get a little sweaty, but after that mile walk, they'll be able to come inside, come in the AC, and cool down and be able to go about their day with no impacts. That same math problem for someone with an FASD 
could be the equivalent of their brain running a 5K on a hot summer day. Um, those impacts are gonna be more severe. And this a lot of times is tied into regulation. The more that you can provide sensory breaks and keep in mind of where their regulation is at at, at all times, the better the outcomes and the more stability and homostasis that you're gonna have in the long run. All right, so here are some common neurobehavioral symptoms. Um, and we don't have time to talk about all of these today. And I do wanna take a break um, in a few minutes just because I know two hours can be a really long time to sit at your computer. Um, so I'll talk about a few of these, but the, if there's any that you want me to specifically focus on or share examples on of what this can look like, uh, feel free to let me know. <clears throat> Let's see. Difficulty with abstract concepts. This is, again, your executive functioning. This is your ability to understand concepts that have multiple meanings, like respect or responsibility or accountability. That all of those terms can have one meaning. Let's take uh, respect, for example. Is that saying please or thank you, um, having manners in general, but even that's abstract, or holding the door for an elderly person? But abstract concepts, that is also our understanding of time. We can't physically see time. And time management skills is a common area where this population has struggles in money management. Nowadays, uh, I don't know too many people that actually carry around cash with them. I never have cash with me. Um, it's all plastic. I actually had a client once go $10,000 in credit card debt because someone thought it would be a good idea to get her a credit card. And it took me a good three weeks to finally find a way for her to understand the situation that she was in. And I got where I printed off fake money and I even laminated it. Um, to this day, I believe that she still uses that fake money to do her bills on a monthly basis. And I, I put two stacks down. I said, this is how much money that you actually have in your bank account, $67. This is how much money that you have to pay back to the credit card company. So money management, that could be something that given for younger kids um, to start working with them on. So then when they do get to transitional age or adults, um, they have that foundation already in place. Another thing with abstract concepts is generalizing knowledge. Um, generalizing knowledge is especially troubling for um, kids. And this could be where you teach a child in the bathroom how to wash their hands properly. Really important with what's going on right now in the world. Now, they have a difficult time generalizing what they learned in the bathroom and applying that same skill in the kitchen because that environment is completely different. These kiddos, they tend to be inferential learners, meaning they, it helps them to recall their memories based on the environment around them. So I run one of our youth groups, and when I'm trying to have one of the kids I work with um, remember an activity that we did a few months ago, I say, well, that was around Christmas time. Remember, I was wearing my ugly sweater, and I had my tall boots on, and I had my hair braided. That will give them a, a jump start to remember that more versus if I just said, well, that was, you know, the activity that we did, and this was the lesson learned. Um, another common symptom that we see 
is extreme under or over sensitivity to sensory input. Now, if someone is under sensitive to sensory input, uh, that means that they need to move, jump, hit, um, do jumping jacks, whatever it needs. They need something to do with their hands or their bodies to help them focus, to keep themselves calm. If someone is oversensitive to sensory input, that is where sensory, think of if they have hearing sensories or hearing um, sensitivity. Think of everything is instead of on level 10 volume level, everything is on level 20. So everything's a little bit louder to them. And I'll share a personal example of how someone with FASD and sensory issues, how they can perceive the world around them. Um, I don't obviously have sensory issues. I don't have FASD, but even as adults, we all experience senses or sensory, right? Through taste, touch, sound, smell, sight. And even as adults, I believe we all have a place or a situation where we feel overwhelmed. You know, whether it's going shopping on Black Friday <clears throat> or the zombie apocalypse or going to your in-laws for the weekend, whatever it may be. For me, that overwhelming place is going to the state fair. The state fair is just not my cup of tea. I know there's great food, um, lots of fun, but it's just not my cup of tea. But a few years, a few years back when my nieces were five and six, they wanted for their birthdays for me to take them to the state fair. And I'm like, okay, this is gonna suck, but I'm a good aunt, I'm an awesome aunt. So I'm gonna suck it up and take my nieces to the state fair. But this is a five-year-old and a six-year-old. And as I'm sure all of you know, any fair is extremely busy. So I recruited a friend of mine to come with me to help wrangle and keep the girls safe and together. Well, about 10 minutes before we were going to leave, my friend called me and said, um, I got called into work and I can't come today. It was also over 100 degrees that day. So even before we get in the car to leave, I'm already a little uncomfortable, already a little worried. I wanna keep my, my nieces safe because if I don't, my sister's gonna kill me. So we finally go through the zoo of parking. We walk through the big gates at the state fair and instantly I can hear the grandstand music. I can hear people walking and talking all around me. There's a couple fighting about 20 yards from us. Um, I'm dodging strollers from taking on my ankles. I can smell the food, the barns, the trash, sensory overload. Now, the difference between myself in that situation and someone with an FASD is one, I can regulate myself. In my head, I'm thinking I'm hot, I'm sweaty, I want to go home. This is this is uncomfortable. All these people around me, I'm uncomfortable. Someone with an FASD, especially if they have impacted in, um, limbic systems, and someone asked a question about um, how do we um, know the difference between um, FASD and traumatic response? Well, that's a thing. That would be a co-occurring um, disorder because prenatal alcohol exposure can also impact limbic systems. And if you've ever received any kind of training on ACEs, um, which is adverse childhood experience, which is a trauma for childhood, that impacts your limbic system. And I talked a little bit about all the chemicals and the balance in our brain. Well, the limbic system, that has a chemical called cortisol. And cortisol, that is that chemical in our brain that puts us in fight, flight, or freeze mode. And if someone has increased levels of cortisol, 
it kind of means that they're always on edge. They're constantly on the edge of fight, flight, or freeze. Well, if someone has difficulty with regulation, they have an FASD, um, it can also increase those, those cortisol levels. So it can be very hard to determine the difference between whether it is a symptom of their FASD or a symptom of their adverse childhood experience. That is something I would definitely recommend um, going to a therapist who is um, informed in both FASD and ACEs to help you get some more um, specific strategies for that child. The second ability I had at the state fair versus someone with an FASD was I could process sensory. After 20 minutes of being there, um, I didn't notice that the grandstand music had changed because my brain has ability to pick and choose what is important about the situation to focus on. Okay, that grandstand music, not important because I'm making sure that my nieces are staying by me, that I'm holding their hands, that they're staying safe. Someone with sensory issues um, and FASD, their brains might not have the ability to pick and choose what's important to focus on. And it can be more extreme. Um, and that state fair example, that is an extreme example because like I said, I don't have sensory issues. So it can be little things that throw this population off and, call them, and cause them regulation issues. It can be tagged to the back of your shirt. I've worked with many individuals on the spectrum that have issues with that. Um, or bright lights, especially fluorescent lights. And most schools have those fluorescent lights. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about how you can implement a support system for your child um, in all areas of their life as we get into those strategies. Um, and then the last person, or the, I'm sorry, the last symptom I'd like to talk about is maybe prone to confabulation. And actually, I think this is a good time uh, to take a quick break um, before we get into this, because confabulation kind of goes over the next uh, few slides. So if everyone wants to take a five minute break, we will reconvene at 11, or I'm sorry, 1043. So go ahead and run to the bathroom, get more coffee, um, or just stand up and walk around for a bit if you'd like.
All right, so I have 11.43, so we'll get back to it. Uh, before I go on to the next slide, um, I'm going to answer a few questions that I missed. Um, someone asked, uh, our son with FASD is constantly moving and needs to fidget. Will that ever settle down? That can be uh, difficult without knowing a little bit more about your son and um, accessing his neuropsych assessment. Um, what I have found to be beneficial, especially um, with OT occupational therapy, is a getting an occupational therapy uh, therapist who is FASD informed and implementing those OT strategies in your every day. So instead of um, your son fidgeting when he needs to be when they need to be concentrating, um, when he wakes up in the morning, have him crab walk to the bathroom before he brushes his teeth. And then he has to bear walk down the stairs. Um, and then he has to do um, 10 squats before he sits down for breakfast. The more that you can um, integrate those OT strategies in your everyday routine can help with some of that fidgetiness when they need to be concentrating. Um, whether that will settle down eventually, um, that's really a case-by-case -case basis. I have seen adults with an FASD um, have, they do become better over time with their regulation and sensory issues, um, but I would definitely recommend you connecting with an OT. There was another question on, at the beginning, you said that FASD is not a spectrum disorder, but then further said it is. Can you explain that a little more? So when I said that, I meant um, more specifically, FASD is not a diagnosis in itself, um, but it is a spectrum disorder. And I, I apologize, I might've messed up my words there. Um, and then someone wants me to focus on confabulation and stealing. Um, I am going to talk about confabulation. Um, stealing, that could be, that can come to, that really kind of directs to the difficulty with abstract concepts. Um, ownership is a very abstract concept in itself. Um, if a teen with an FASD saw a bike laying in someone's yard and they steal it and they think, I have a new bike, they truly might not believe that they did anything wrong. That bike was just outside. There was no one's name on it. Um, you can't see property lines. So there are a lot of strategies um, for addressing stealing. I've seen caregivers uh, sew their children's pockets shut so they can't put anything in their pockets um, or clear book bags so you can see exactly what is in the book bag. And that would be another thing to bring to that team, that support group, that support team meeting. Um, we always say a team approach works the best. If you can get the teachers, their therapists, their doctors all um, on the same page, that's gonna have better outcomes all around. And Shauna, we have one more comment that just came in. Um, someone said, at the beginning, you said that FASD is not a spectral disorder, but then further in it is. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yes, um, so FASD, when I, when I said that, I meant more specifically FASD, is not a diagnosis in itself, but it is a spectrum. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think that's helpful. Okay, awesome. All right, so a very common symptom that I've seen cause um, issues with families is maybe prone to confabulation. And if you're not exactly sure what confabulation means, um, it is lying without the intent to deceive. 
or manipulate. So it's unintentionally lying. And to give you kind of a real world, real world ex example of what confabulation could look like, um, if you've ever seen a picture of the dress of whether it's black and gold or blue and white, that can be confabulation. Everyone's going to see that dress color um, differently. They're gonna perceive it a little bit differently. Um, another example is, let's say you and a friend are out for coffee because it's not negative zero degrees outside right now. It's 70 degrees and beautiful. <laughs> and you are outside on patio drinking some coffee with a friend and you see a car, sideswiped a parked car and they take off. So a hit and run. And the police show up and they're interviewing everybody. What was the make model of the car? Did you see how many passenger were, passengers were inside? And the police comes up to you and you say, it was a four-door sedan. I believe it was a Ford Fusion and it was black. And your friend, you're like, you just lied to the police. What is going on? And she goes, well, yeah, I saw the car. I mean, it was a four-door sedan, but that car was not black. That car was blue. That is an example of confabulation. It is how individuals recall memories um, that might not be accurate. They fill in those details based on their own experiences. This is a very common thing for this population because memory issues, especially when it comes to working memory or short-term memory, is often impacted. Um, children with an FASD might remember every single detail about their birthday two years ago, but not remember what they had for breakfast yesterday. And repeat, repeat, repeat is so crucial for this population because the more times that you can tell them, the higher the probability that that piece of information is going to move from their short-term memory to their long-term memory. Shauna, we just got another question in the Q&A. Someone asks, my son was diagnosed with FAS with static encephalopathy at two, two to three years old, and he's 10 now. Recently, I had him evaluated for ASD, and they instead diagnosed him with ARND. Is that typical to be diagnosed with more than one issue on the spectrum? Yes. Um, yes, that is, that is very common um, for someone to be diagnosed with multiple diagnoses. And I can't say specifically why your child was diagnosed in that way, because right now there is no international one-size-fits-all diagnostic criteria. There are multiple different kinds of models used to diagnose FASD. Um, we use the Minnesota criteria, which is a combination of the Institute of Medicine's um, and the CDC's model. And we got another question actually in the chat. Um, someone has asked, would a fluid reasoning deficiency possibly be associated with this? Yes, um, that goes back to the, the difficulty with abstract concepts and difficulty with executive functioning. Um, they have a hard time connecting the dots Neurotypical behavior, we learn by viewing and mimicking people's behavior around us. If you've ever seen a young child playing um, house where they have a, um, a, a spouse and they have a baby, that is our way to learn human behavior. And individuals with an FASD have a difficult time with that. And especially when it comes to cause and effect. So consequences can be very difficult. They don't always understand that A plus B equals C. They don't understand um, why they're getting punished when something happened two hours ago. 
We'll talk a little bit more about that in strategies for consequences a little bit later on. All right. Um, and I feel like this developmental skills timeline explains that confabulation um, and those various skill levels and how they can change drastically from day to day. So this person here is physically 18 years old. And this is just one example. This isn't on average for people with an FASD. Um, this isn't a medium or anything like that. This is just one example. So they're physically 18 years old, yet they have the comprehension and emotional maturity of a six-year-old. Um, time and money management skills of an eight-year-old. Um, the reading level is pretty good at 16, but here's the kicker. Expressive language skills actually pass their physical age at 20. Having advanced or excelled expressive language skills is very common for this population. They tend to be able to present well. They can articulate. They can say those big words and um, phrases into conversations um, where it makes sense. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they have the comprehension of what is actually being said or the content of that conversation. To give you an example, um, I used to run one of our youth groups. And every Tuesday night, we would have meetings at our office. And one evening, I was giving this 12-year-old, and it's important that you remember that they're 12, a ride to one of our meetings. And this kid is a total chatterbox. Great kid, but he um, doesn't have the best social skills, um, incessantly chatting. So whenever I have him in my car, he just that's away and I don't really need to give him any prompts or any cues or anything because he'll just go for days. And this one particular day, he was sitting in my back seat and he was chatting away like normal. And all of a sudden he goes, oh, I gotta get my taxes done this week. And I still giggle every time I tell the story because I'm thinking, you're 12 years old. I know your mom. I know that you don't have a job. But I've also seen this kid constantly be put down by everyone around him. His peers say, go away, you're annoying. Adults, I've heard him say, if you could just stop talking, you would succeed. So whether professional or personal, I'm always very aware never to do that. So instead of telling him, you're being silly, you don't have taxes to do, I dug a little deeper and I asked, well, what do you have to do with these taxes of, you, of yours? And he goes, I got to swing by work and pick up my W-2. <laughs> And at that point, I, I was impressed. I'm like, well, maybe he's a lawn mowing business or something. I'm not sure. Because at age 12, I had no idea what a W-2 was. But I decided to do a few more follow-up questions. And I finally asked him, well, do you think that you're going to have to pay in this year or you're going to get lucky and get some money back? The whole concept of why we do taxes, right? And it goes silent. And I look in my rear view mirror at him and he has this most confused, puzzled look on his face. Like, what am I talking about? And I later found out that he had just heard his mom or an, another adult in his life say, got to swing by work, pick up my W-2 because I need to get my taxes done. <clears throat> and him hearing that one statement stuck with him. So he was able to have a conversation about doing his taxes. So it's really important that we're checking for understanding. Confabulation can cause a lot of challenges for these kiddos, especially in school. And checking for understanding is crucial. 
not just asking yes or no questions or having them repeat back what you want them to do because anyone can do that. But that doesn't mean that they have understanding or the steps that they need to take to actually complete that task. All right, so we're gonna do a quick activity to um, further demonstrate that comprehension expressive language barrier. So I'm going to read the story to you and then I'll ask you a series of compre uh, comprehension questions to see if you're able to answer those. Um, before I get started, just know that um, one, all of the answers are on this page right now, as is. Two, this is not code for anything. This is not a different language. Someone guessed if, guessed if it, that it was Pig Latin the other day. No, it's not Pig Latin. It's not supposed to make sense as is right now. All right. This is the story of Fingle Dobe and Priven. Last Cerny, Fingle Dobe and Priven were in the nerd length, tripling gloopy gables and gleaming burly greps. Suddenly, a diddy shizzle boofed into Fingle Dobe's tress. Priven glaved and glaved. Oh, Fingle Dobe, he chiped. That diddy strizzle is tunning in your grep. All right, I'll give you a few seconds to process that. First question, who are the characters in the story? And you can en enter those into the chat box. <sighs> yes, a few people are saying Fingle Dove and Priven. That is correct. Um, when did this story take place? Yes, people are saying last Cerny. Uh, I'll ask you a hard one. Uh, what happened to Fingle Dopey's Tresk? Yes, and Diddy Strizzle moved into it. Um, and then what did Pribbon then do? Yeah, he chiped and he glaped and glaped. Would you be able to act this story out? I'm not going to make anyone act this out. I do make high school students sometimes when I do this activity with them act it out, which is always comical. But I see some yes, I see some no's, maybe, perhaps. You can interpret of what you think is going on in this story, right? But do you have a true comprehension of what is actually going on? Let's take last Cerny, for example. What is Cerny? Is that last Saturday? Is that last Sunday, is that last century? Maybe it's something completely different. Everyone is going to interpret what the story is actually about. So checking for understanding is gonna be very important. Um, I know I've had a few questions on co-occurring disorders. <clears throat> the truth is 94% of this population, they do have a co-occurring mental health disorder. So they'll have FASD and ADHD. Um, in my experience, ADHD or ADD, definitely one of the most common co-occurring um, disorders associated with FASD. 
out of the 300 individuals I've know I've known with NEPASD, I might be able to name 10 or 15 that did not have a co-occurring ADHD diagnosis. Now, the important thing is to find out whether it is a true co-occurring diagnosis or whether it's just their FASD symptoms. And that is something that you will need to talk to their doctor about and make sure that the, their doctors are FASD informed. Because <clears throat> let's say that someone does have a co-occurring or is misdiagnosed as having ADHD. Doctors are going to be prescribing medications for ADHD. Therapists are going to be doing therapy for ADHD. Those medications um, might make their brain chemistry more unstable and make their behaviors worse. Those therapies might not be beneficial for this population. Most mental health therapies um, are kind of surrounded in, cog in cognitive approaches. Um, CBT, um, MI, all of those therapies require good self-interpersonal skills. They require good memory. They require good abstract thinking. And as we already know, those are common areas where this population has challenges in. So I know that you guys have all the handouts um, on the website, but I am gonna upload a handout here. Oh, if I can. Oh, I don't think I can. So if you get a chance, I one of the handouts that I shared is called the Overlapping Characteristics Handout. And let's see here. Okay, yep, it looks very similar to this. All of these behaviors down the left side of the page, those are all related to FASD. And on the top here, you'll see all the different diagnoses. And you can see just how many of these behaviors do overlap with FASD. Now, you'll, you're probably starting to sense common, a common theme with my presentations is we need to dig deeper. We already know what the behaviors are, but all too often we jump right to how do we fix this behavior? But in order to fix it, we need to find the root cause. Because if we can, if we know the root cause, we can prevent that behavior from happening again or take a different approach to completely avoid it in the first place. So now we're going to start talking about some of those uh, strategies that you can implement. And I know that I only have about um, a half an hour left. So um, some of these I will jump through fairly quickly, but if there's any that you want me to focus on more, just please let me know in the chat. So what can you do as foster care providers? Number one, get informed exactly what you're doing here. Uh, we do offer monthly caregiver webinars on a variety of topics. We bring in um, presenters from all over the nation and the world um, that can be really helpful. But not only is it important for you to get informed, but everyone around them. The more people that you have in their support system who understand their FASD, the better the outcomes. Um, you'll want to identify community resources like foster source. Um, get involved in support groups and local advocacy groups. Um, because of the pandemic, all of our support groups for caregivers are held virtually now. And we have found that it's really beneficial right now um, because not only is it accessible for everybody, but it's so much easier for caregivers because then they don't have to find a sitter to drive to the place um, and whatnot. 
We also have a series called Hand in Hand, um, and that is open to um, individuals throughout the nation. And if you have recently received a diagnosis for a child with NAPASD, um, Hand in Hand is a great place to start. It's a four-week series, and each week different uh, focuses on different topics. If anyone is interested in that, I can certainly send you um, information, as well as it's free for all, all families. Shauna, a question has just come in through the Q&A. Um, someone's asked, do you encourage educating the child at the appropriate time about their own condition? Yes. Um, as long as the child um, is stable um, emotionally and you think that they are ready to have that conversation, I would certainly recommend informing the child. We did a survey a, a few years back, um, so this was not a a peer-reviewed research um, study by any means, but we asked all of our youth, you know, all these different questions. And one of the questions was, how did you feel when you got your diagnosis? Um, what were your, what was your first reaction? And I would say about 90% of the feedback was uh, relief almost. I finally understand why I'm different than my peers. I finally understand why I have these big blow-ups for no apparent reason. I finally understand why it takes me a little bit longer to complete stuff. Think of it, a lot, sometimes I've seen, especially foster care parents, be kind of hesitant to get an FASD diagnosis because they don't want that negative label, but that's not how we need to view that. We need to view um, a diagnosis or this label as a, um, a care label in the back of a shirt. It tells you exactly how it needs to be washed, how to take care of it, so it lasts longer and has a good outcome. That is the same way we need to think about this population. Um, and then lastly, what you need to do as caregivers is self-care, respite time. Because those behaviors can be challenging, because we're in a pandemic, because you have now become not only childcare providers and teachers and caregivers, you need time for yourself. We cannot expect our children to be the best possible versions of themselves when we are tired and drained. So whether it's finding 10 minutes every day to have quiet time or listen to music or take a, a bath or going on a beach vacation once a year, you need to do whatever you need to do to make sure that you are centered and healthy yourself. One of the best strategies that I can provide for you today is building on their strengths. And sometimes their strengths are not always so apparent or we don't always see them as strengths. Um, that 12 year old chatty kid who I told that story about, he is incessantly chatty, but he is also one of the friendliest people I know. And he was having some issues in school um, because he had some regulation issues and he is incessantly chatty. What we did is we worked with the teacher. So instead of him just sitting in the back of the class listening to the lecture, he got to hold the clicker and he flips through the slides and helps the teacher. We gave him a job. He got to say the morning announcements and his school is doing a lot better now. Shana, that, oh, go ahead. another question just came in um, from a parent who's asking, how do you help an FASD teen get comfortable with asking for things to be repeated? 
there are several different approaches to that. If it's in school or with an organization or a group that they consistently are interacting with, like family, um, notifying the family around that. If you can come up with like a one-page printout of this is what you need to know about my child to help them, have that be one of the first ones. Um, another good way for that is if they're out in public and it's not something that they interact with um, very often is role-playing. Role-playing is one of the best strategies for this population and for social situations, um, making friends or asking for help. So this is just a quote that I really like um, by Walter Barbie. Um, Don't try harder, try differently. If you've told a child a thousand times, he or she, and they, or I'm sorry, if you told a child a thousand times and he or she still does not understand, then it is not the child who is a slow learner. We are, we are the adults in this situation. And if what we're doing is continually not working, then we need to modify what we're doing to help them succeed because we're the ones in charge, right? So if something's not working, we need to think out of the box and find something that does work. And that really starts with having that paradigm shift. We need to change the way that we perceive these behaviors. We need to stop, of, stop thinking of them as having behaviors. We need to think of them as experiencing symptoms from the disability. And that's not to say that children with an FASD are never naughty or they never do anything wrong or they never do anything intentionally. I'm not saying that, but if we're already in that understanding mind frame, it's gonna have positive impacts in all areas of their life. So maybe we are, instead of thinking of them as being defiant or they won't or they're refusing or they just don't try or they're lazy, maybe, that, maybe there are sensory issues going on. Maybe they're tired of feeling. Whether you're a, a child, a teen, or an adult, no one likes to look dumb in front of their peers. And what I have seen over and over again is, especially these kids, because of their organic brain, de- orga- organic brain injury, it's so much easier for them to be the class clown, to have an outburst, to lie, to be defiant, because they're tired of feeling. We need to set up support all around them so they don't have to fall on those coping mechanisms. All right, so now we're gonna get into some of those uh, strategies. And as I said, um, I only have about 20 minutes left. I I do apologize for that. Um, So if there's any that you want me to focus on, just let me know. It looks like I have a question. What if they do have defiant issues? How How do you tell the difference? Now, I don't know if um, a child that you're working with has um, ODD, which is oppositional defiant disorder, which in my personal experience is not aligned with uh, proof alliance. I really don't like that diagnosis um, because it really doesn't tell us anything about what's really going on. If they are having defiant disorders, ways that you can address that is A, get them a therapist to figure out if there are any underlying issues going on. And maybe you need to adjust the strategies that you're using in all areas of their life. Because maybe some of those strategies um, are adding up to big outbursts. 
And that might be, and that might be related to the limbic system and the regulation issues. So if you think of it as for a neurotypical person, for them to go into a rage where they're at the point where they're screaming very, very upset, it's gonna take them a long time to get to that point. And they're gonna have their blow up and probably within 10, 15 minutes, will calm down and be able to regulate themselves again. For this population, think of them as a half boiling pot. So they're, are already, they're always already kind of on edge and it can be little things that add up to a big outburst. So let's say a kid wakes up late for school and they didn't have time to eat breakfast. And then they had to run to the bus because they were gonna miss the bus. And they walk into the classroom and the teacher goes, oh, did you get a chance to do your homework yet? And all of a sudden that one last little thing makes their lid pop. And the teacher's like, I just asked you a simple question, but the way that they viewed it was something completely different. Um, so these strategies. If you're gonna be implementing these, we highly recommend you do a trial and error period. So picking out one strategy and then progress noting, progress noting how often you use it, um, their child's reaction to it, because then that can give you a really good sense of Okay, well, if this one strategy worked, well, this one's sort of related, maybe that will work. And not all the strategies that I'm going to share with you today are, are going to work 100% of the time with your child. And some of them might not work at all. So if out of the 10 strategies that I give you today, two of them work, we would consider that a success. Because those two, those two strategies, those go into your toolbox. And then you're going to continue to try other strategies. And eventually that toolbox will be full. Um, strategies are also not transferable from one person on the spectrum to another. As you all know, if you were raising a child with an FASD, they are all unique and they're all a little bit different. Shauna, we have a couple of questions coming in on the Q&A. Um, mm -hmm. The first one is, what are some early signs in infancy to look for when you know the mom used alcohol consistently during pregnancy? That is a really good question. Um, unfortunately, most times when it comes to this population, FASD, their FASD really isn't identified until I would say early childhood time. That's when that screening comes into play. That's also when um, they're the first time that they're interact, they're in the community. That's a little bit different versus at home where they, that's their safe place. Milestones, if they're not being met, that can be another kind of um, tip off that there might be something off. But most times or the most common time where we get referrals for assessments or where their FASD symptoms become more apparent is around middle school age. Middle school is when our social systems get more complex. You think of kindergarten, everyone in the classroom is getting invited to birthday parties. Whereas middle school, that's when um, they start selecting their friends based on common activities um, and how they get along with others. As well as middle school is also when our courses in school get more abstract and complex. Think of first grade, you're putting beans into a jar, adding and subtracting to middle school when things get um, more into multiplication and division or that abstract concepts, more math in your head. As well as the social sciences um, are abstract in themselves. 
It looks like I have another question. How does choline help symptoms development? Oh, I like that. You guys are very, um, very on par with FASD research. So Dr. Wozniak, um, who shared those brain imaging scans with me, he is actually doing a choline supplement uh, study right now with the CDC. And he's been doing this for, I think, six years, maybe seven years. And what they found is choline can prove brain functioning to a certain point. It's not going to cure FASD, um, but it can improve certain brain domain areas. So far, what he has learned from his study is choline is only beneficial up to a certain age. He's found that um, kids who have taken choline um, up to age four, I believe it is, they have seen some improvement in brain functioning. Um, if it's after age four, those impacts are a lot less severe, but that study is ongoing. Um, Dr. Wozniak is one of our leading um, advocates that we work with. He's spoken at our conference multiple times um, and on our conference planning committee. Our annual conference is held every year in October, sometimes you know November. Um, this year it is held in, in October and we're offering a hybrid model um, because of the pandemic. We don't know what things are gonna look like um, in October. So <clears throat> individuals will have the option to attend our conference virtually or in person. And I can share more information um, with Dee and Lindsay as we get closer if anyone is interested in that. All right. Another good core or general strategy to keep in mind is meet the person where they're at every single day. So whenever I'm working with individuals on the spectrum, um, for the first like 10 minutes or so, I'm almost doing an assessment with them. I kind of figure out, okay, are they twitching? Are they agitated? What are they talking about? Um, what are their hands doing? Because every day is gonna be a new day for them. They, they don't hold grudges, which is a positive. But with that said, every day is a new day for them, which can cause some difficulties in other areas. Um, and we really encourage you to avoid situations that, would, um, that you would use tough love. I know that can be hard for adults because I was raised on tough love, it worked for me. But for this population, they will not get the point that you want them to get. They will not understand that lesson. Tough love requires good abstract thinking, good interpersonal skills. They will not be able to make those connections, um, as well as power struggles. And I don't see power struggles as common for caregivers than I do in school situations with educators. Um, you already know that you're the adult in this situation, but inserting your power, that's not gonna help the child. There's gonna be a lot of butting heads in that, in that situation. And Shauna, someone's asking, what about omega-3 supplements? Someone posted, we were told to give our kiddo 1,000 milligrams a day of omega-3. Okay, I'm not as familiar with omega-3. Um, if you were told by a doctor, then I would definitely follow that. Um, but I, I'm personally not aware of any benefits um, for individuals with FASD specifically, but I can definitely do more research and find out for you. 
All right. So these are the eight essentials for success. A lot of the strategies that we recommend kind of revolve around one of these eight. Um, being very concrete, stating very plainly what you mean. Try to avoid idioms and sarcasm. Um, joking can be hard for this for this population, and it's it, that's not saying that you can't joke around with them or have fun with them, but after the joke, stating that was just a joke. Um, screening. So these are for the caregivers who uh, um, are raising children and they suspect that there might be an FASD involved. Screening and getting a diagnosis does have a lot of benefits. This person can be recognized as having a brain injury. They have a disability, causing outcomes to improve. Approaches can be modified. It, it will reduce a lot of that frustration and anger of why is this happening? and Why are they having so much trouble? And reframing poor self-perception. There's a life expectancy study done um, back in 2016, and they found the life expectancy for someone with FAS, just at one diagnosis, um, was 34 years old. And I, I still remember reading that um, research study, and I was just completely shocked. The life expectancy for the general population is 82, but for individuals with FAS, 34. The top three reasons that they found was, well, the third to top was they have impacted immune systems. So they tend to get more frequent and more severe infections, which is very common with the pandemic going on. Um, the second, high risk behavior. Um, they don't always think their actions through or they don't understand what the consequences could be. So they find themselves in um, maybe not safe situations. And by the time that they realize it, they're in too deep. And the number one reason, suicide. Because of that depression, because of that anxiety, because of that isolation that happens all too often for this population. So getting them involved in the community um, can be a life-changing thing for this population. And, and very importantly, prevention of future alcohol exposed pregnancies. Oh, and this was the, the study um, that I had just talked about. So if you start, if you see some of those symptoms that we talked about, some of those neurobehavioral um, symptoms, but you're not quite sure whether you think um, asking for an assessment um, would be beneficial, or you're not quite sure if you have enough proof yet, you can also look for these risk factors. Children in the foster adoptive care system, that's a huge risk factor. Um, as I said in the beginning, this population, they're 10 to 15 times more likely to have an FASD. Um, siblings with an FASD or related diagnosis. <clears throat> the increased age of the mother and the more children that she has already increases the probability of an FASD occurring. Multiple diagnoses and meds don't seem to be working. These are the kids that you might have in your home who have a laundry list of diagnoses and their medication list is three pages long. Um, the most I have seen was a, an 11-year-old girl, and she had 12 mental health diagnoses. And it wasn't that her parents were bad parents and trying to drug her up on all these medications. They were just at their wit's end, and they were doing everything in their power to try to help this little girl. Um, when she finally received her FASD, FASD diagnosis, they looked at it through a completely different lens. Her doctors were informed, um, and from what I know, she's doing a lot better now. 
And then involvement in the criminal justice, justice system or substance use starting at a very young age. The average age that this population will start getting involved with the, the justice system is 12.8, according to the American Bar Association. So 12, 13 years old. And this population is 30 times more likely to get involved in the justice system than the general population in, during adolescence years. The most common first crimes tend to be um, vandalism, shoplifting, um, as well as domestic violence. And that tends to be within the family. All right. So we get calls every single day from all over the country from families and social service agencies saying, I work with someone with an FASD. This is the behavior. What are your recommendations? Whenever I get calls such as that, my first question most times is, what's the environment like? Because when it comes down to it, we don't have the ability to change this, this person's brain. We can't do that. It's permanent organic brain injury. But we do have the ability to adapt the environment to ensure that it is welcoming and calming for them. So we wanna set them up to succeed and the environment is the first place to start. Decreasing distractions. So using calming colors, um, not having a ton of stuff on your walls, their room, if it's a mess, set up weekly cleaning schedules can be really helpful. Setting up um, a structured routine can also be helpful. And unfortunately, I'm really bummed that we do not have time to do this activity. Um, but what I would have you do is point out a few things that um, why this room is overwhelming and what we can do to adapt it. So for, let's go over the living room, for example that is extremely overwhelming with all the books, the pillows, everything going on on the floor. There's not much space to walk around. That's not to say that you can't have any fun or color or clutter in your house because if you're any, anything like me, I definitely am cluttered. You can simply get a curtain and block off that bookcase in the back. That is a concrete way to kind of decrease those distractions. Um, the same with the coffee table, maybe putting a cloth down so you can't see the sides. Um, getting, rid of, getting rid of some of those pillows or a lamp, making the surfaces more clean and cut. Um, I do like the natural light in that living room. That's another one that we recommend. For the living or for the, be, for the bedroom, excuse me, there are many things that you can do to modify the environment in the bedroom um, to make it more welcoming for them. You can see this back wall here, how there's pictures on pretty much the entire wall. It looks like this young lady or um, gentleman is really into art. Ways that you can kind of structure um, things like that is get them a cork board and say, you can have whatever you want on this cork board, but it stays on this cork board to kind of decrease those distractions throughout the entire room. Um, not using lamps such as this. Um, there are a lot of lamps now that um, have different settings for lighting, um, so it can be more calming. Maybe not having the TV in the room can be also very helpful. And again, setting up weekly cleaning schedules. Strategies, um, physical exercise. And I want to point out that voluntary physical exercise um, 
a few years back, I had a caregiver see this slide and then they started making their child run five miles a day. And I said, no, please don't do that. <laughs> there are a lot of benefits to exercise. We already know that it helps with our endorphins, our physical health, but there's also benefits specifically for individuals with organic brain injury. It can improve, um, it's been shown to improve memory deficits as well as regulation. Um, especially bilateral activities, anything that you use both hands and legs like biking or swimming, um, that can help improve brain functioning as well and improve self-perceptions. It gives them a sense of community, a sense of um, somewhere where they can belong. Communication strategies, um, really it boils down to being very specific, slowing things down, and making sure that they have time to process information. Um, and then when all else fails, repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, transitions, you really wanna set up um, a smooth transition. This population has a tendency to get stuck, whether it's an activity or a certain topic. Um, redirecting them is one of the simplest strategies that you can do, um, taking them completely off course and then bringing them back on. Um, asking simple questions um, that can prompt self-correction. Instead of saying, go sit down for dinner, asking them a question. You know, where do you want to sit for dinner today? Um, here are some um, examples of how you can implement um, transition or make a smooth transition. Um, timers can be helpful, but you we always recommend physical timers where they can physically see the time running out and then notifying them if there's any change in their schedule. Now, this is really gonna be based on that specific person. I've seen um, change alerts such as this be very helpful so they have time to prepare for that change in their schedule. I've also seen it cause a lot of anxiety where they over they obsess about it until that change has completed. So that's gonna be based on what works for your child. All right, so I know there's two minutes left and Lindsay, you said that you wanted to um, make a quick announcement. I just have to give everybody their code and show them how to get their certificate. Okay, so everybody does have the, um, the, the PowerPoint presentation. I do apologize, um, but I do not want to take up any more of your time. I know it's Saturday and people have um, things that they need to get done. So I will just end on this slide. This is what people with an FASD want caregivers to know about them. Um, rapport is key, especially for children in the foster care um, system. That trust and trauma is very common for this population. So building rapport, um, having one-on-one -on -one support, um, group dynamics can be difficult. Um, allow time and space when they are upset. And then help me make connections um, with my peers and really get to know me. And then if anyone has any additional questions on the slides that we didn't get to, or even the slides that we did talk about, I'm more than happy to um, set up a one-on-one -on -one with you and talk through any of those. And here's our contact information. Thank you.